Well, welcome back, everyone. As Mary shared, opening Sunday is a favorite time of year, a time when we all welcome each other back, really. It's a leftover celebration in some ways from the days when we didn't meet at all in the summertime. But even now, the summer is slower, with plenty of people, including Mary and me, away on vacation and with different speakers and musicians than we usually have with us. Of course, the real difference about the summertime doesn't have anything to do with Wes at all. Summer, a TV wasteland. (laughs) Now, I know that some of you are probably among those who don't watch TV at all. I want to acknowledge that does make you a better person than I am. (laughs) I'm fine with that. For those of you who do occasionally enjoy mockumentaries and laugh lines, you'll know what I mean. Summer is a time for reruns, and even those can be slim pickings. Which is how my husband and I found ourselves watching the final season of Boston Legal on DVD this summer, which originally aired in the fall of 2008. Never a show to shy away from political commentary, the last episode had the characters reflecting on the election of Barack Obama. It brought me back to my experience of that night, not quite two years ago. We watched the election results in a friend's apartment just a few blocks north of U Street, the neighborhood famous for DC's version of the Harlem Renaissance. When the results came in just about midnight, you could hear the city erupt. We woke my daughter, sleeping in a pack-and-play in the bedroom, so that later we could tell her that she watched with us as the nation elected its first African-American president. It was an amazing moment, full of hope and possibility, not just for what this person could do, but for what it said about our country about our journey from slave-holding white European settlers to melting pot to multicultural celebration. It was, I felt at that moment, a new beginning. As an aside, that was the general consensus on Boston Legal as well. This congregation celebrated that new beginning together in January when we hosted a neighborhood showing of, of Obama's inauguration listening to Aretha Franklin's commanding voice and to that beautiful benediction by civil rights leader, the Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry. We had a packed house here that day, neighbors streaming in to join us because they felt, too, that something new was happening. All politics aside, it was a different way of understanding our nation's leadership, a beginning of new possibilities. And here we are, not quite two years later. The shininess has worn off a little, hasn't it? Whatever you think about the nation's current leadership, about what has or has not been accomplished in the last year and a half, that sparkly veneer of newness and possibility has eroded some. We like the president's policies, or we don't, or we sometimes do, but we don't preface every comment with, Acknowledging the amazing beginning and newness of this presidency. In some ways, of course, that's a good thing. After all, America elected Obama as president, not as eternal symbol of new possibility. Obama's race continues to be a topic of conversation, sometimes in ugly ways. 
But my guess is that from his perspective, he's a president like any other, dealing with difficult economic and international situations, working on legislation he cares about, trying to manage what I can only think is a ridiculously overwhelming job. In other ways, of course, there's a sadness that we have forgotten our celebration of newness in the day-to-day -day of the country marching along. We are, as a country and in our own lives, great at celebrating the beginning of things, great at inaugurations and weddings and baby namings. But as I often tell couples that I'm marrying, weddings are not typical of married life. I really wish that I got to drink champagne and eat cake all day with my husband, with occasional breaks to receive congratulations from my family and friends. <laughs> but in actuality, we are taking out the recycling, trying to ensure that our child is reasonably well-fed, and occasionally remembering to blow a kiss to each other as one of us runs out the door. I feel some resonance with President Obama, actually, in terms of professional celebrations. My installation as senior leader here at West took place just a few days after his inauguration. And in fact, sometimes people get confused and refer to my inauguration, which is either flattering or makes me think you are really expecting too much of me. <laughs> I am now entering my third year with you, and I realized over the summer that I can't call myself new anymore. Can't say I'm just at the beginning of my leadership with you. After two years, President Obama and I have both settled in, and the proverbial cake and balloons are gone. Well, I think that's a darn shame. Not necessarily in those particular instances, but more globally. Our culture is so wrapped up in the newest and the latest greatest that we forget that life itself requires celebration. Weddings are a perfect example. We have an entire industry devoted to manufacturing and selling tiny dolls to top cakes. And at the same time, we often don't provide real skills to couples about what it takes for a marriage to succeed, how to negotiate the inevitable disagreements and manage a whole lifetime with another person. This is, I think, a practical failure, but it's also a religious failure. By focusing our celebrations on the beginnings of things, we forget about the beauty and the joy in the everyday, and we lose our ability to make it through the endurance test that is life. There are some exceptions to this. My husband and I always celebrate our anniversary, raising a glass to another year with each other, another year of doing essentially what we promised to do at our wedding. I should acknowledge, lest you be alarmed by my hubris, that we've only been married for four years. <laughs> and so though, although we celebrate our time together, we are aware that we'll really get to be proud of ourselves in 20 or 30 more. This congregation will have a chance to celebrate something that is both a beginning and a continuation at our formal installation of Mary Herman on October 10th. Yeah, you can cheer for that. Mary recently received her certification as an ethical culture leader and so is officially a clergy person in the eyes of our movement. She has also, as many of you know better than I, 
began, has been serving in that capacity at West for many years, caring for people through births and deaths, creating our liturgical year and many of our programs speaking on Sundays and capital L, leading this religious community. And so we have the unique chance to honor the newness of Mary's certification and her formal relationship with this congregation as one of your clergy, and also to celebrate what she has been doing and will keep right on doing, a kind of wedding and anniversary party rolled into one. And what about today? What about the beginning of our year together, a year that is in many ways the middle of things? I'm not new anymore. The building, a source of work and excitement and energy, is not really new anymore. For some of you, ethical culture is still new. You have just discovered our community and our movement. But for many of us, it is where we have been for some time now. It is committee work and board work and annual budget drives. The religion and values, the ethical grounding that we found so revelatory when we first stumbled upon it is now less like a wedding and more like a marriage. We spend a lot of time making sure we have taken out the recycling. And that really is a religious failure. Luckily, I think the solution is a religious one as well. I started thinking about all of this, about beginnings and middles and celebrations over my vacation and study leave time in July. The Boston legal finale, of course, was during the vacation part. During the study leave part, I read a book that had been, give, been given to me a long time ago and sat there languishing on my shelf. Dancing in the Streets, A History of Collective Joy is, rather improbably, by Barbara Ehrenreich, who brought us the not exactly joyful nickel and dimed. In Dancing in the Streets, Ehrenreich considers the loss of ecstatic ritual in what she calls, quote, the modern, or we might say, post-festive era. Finding the source of that loss primarily in the rise of Calvinism and some of the sterner forms of Protestantism, Ehrenreich details the way that ecstatic ritual in dance, song, and rhythm filled a need for people throughout history. In indigenous cultures in Africa, in pre-Protestant Europe, in Latin American carnival life, Ecstatic experiences, often religious in nature, provided a release from everyday life and a profound connection to other human beings. Ehrenreich notes that ecstasy, or collective effervescence, was considered the ultimate basis of religion by sociologist Emile Durkheim. And in Ehrenreich's descriptions of ecstatic experience, we can see the Greek root, Ecstasy comes, as she writes, from words meaning to stand outside of oneself. Even more important to me, though, than standing outside oneself is the way that ecstatic experience enables us to stand, if you will, inside others. The pageantry, carnival, shared dance, and song described by Ehrenreich all lead to the same thing a total absorption of the individual into the group, 
a letting go of rigid roles and hierarchies to embrace the oneness of human experience. To me, this is a religious experience that is at its heart distinctly humanistic. It requires no belief beyond a belief in each other. It places the source of ecstasy in our shared life together. Why, then, do we have such a hard time letting go and having fun? To the best of my knowledge, ethical culture history has been light on ecstatic religious ritual. <laughs> Much more likely to embrace the life of the mind, individual, philosophical, and quietly contained. Aaron Reich referred to this as, quote, the essence of the Western mind, and particularly the Western male, sorry, upper-class mind, its ability to resist the contagious rhythm of the drums, to wall itself up in a fortress of ego and rationality against the seductive wildness of the world. This is not to say that the Western mind has never learned to loosen up. Aaron Reich points to the rock and roll phenomenon of the mid-20th century and to our collective experience of sports fandom as examples of the triumph of ecstatic experience in a culture that sometimes explicitly and legally often forbids it. But we are, by and large, a serious-minded people, and I don't mind including myself in that category. For goodness sake, I was raised in a small family in an intellectual New England congregation and in a culture that can be most accurately described as white academia. We didn't do ecstatic ritual. <laughs> but, but, I have had that sense of connection. I have suddenly noticed that I and everyone around me is celebrating with abandon. And I have felt the way it changes my relationship to myself and to them, my relationship to the world. Marches and rallies for social justice, which Aaron Reich points out often have a flavor of carnival to them. A couple of really great wedding receptions, the community blessing at my ordination, our joyful peace spiral dance at Winter Festival here at West. I have gotten a taste of what it means to forget myself, to lose myself, and I hunger for more. Now, I am not advocating that we adopt Sufi trance dancing at Wes. Ritual, it's, it's too, too bad, there's some, uh, some people for Sufi trance dancing, it's good. Ritual that is totally outside one's cultural experience is unlikely to be either satisfying or, frankly, appropriate. But I think we can take some baby steps together. Some little baby dance steps. Thank you. That's perfect. We have a lot of babies these days, actually, to lead us. Some steps that will help us put into bodily, vocal, wild expression our most deeply held humanistic values. Pretty much, I think we should have some good parties. But I don't just mean parties for ourselves. I mean approaching life like a party, approaching committee work and justice work and ethical living like it's a party. Emma Goldman, the American feminist and activist, famously said, if I can't dance, I don't want to be in your revolution. 
maybe we need an expansion. If we can't dance, we don't want to be in your anything. Or, as Ben and Jerry put it, and what is more important than ice cream, if it's not fun, why do it? I would actually rephrase that a little bit, picking up not just fun, but the idea of joy, that key to the ecstatic experience. Joy is about more than fun or happiness. Living with joy doesn't mean skipping along with butterflies dancing around your head. It means bringing your deepest self to the world. As I was looking through some of my books recently, I found a little pamphlet on my shelf. I couldn't tell you where it came from or how it made its way to my office, but its timing was impeccable. Religion and the Joy of Life, <laughs> an address given by Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, in 1919. The address delves into the stages of a religious life, ultimately making an argument for joy as central to our spiritual and ethical experience. Joy, Adler thinks, is woven together with pain, the two of them one golden thread, as he puts it. Through our failures, through the pain we experience, we recommit ourselves to higher ideals, and in that recommitment, find the joy of development, the joy of continuing forward in the journey. Speaking of marriage, he writes, quote, the happiness of married people is a continual quest. The happiness is in the quest itself, springs from the quest, the excellence already seen requiring that augmented excellence shall ensue. In other words, we find joy in life not because of the beginnings and not because of the endings, but because of that middle part. It's the in-between, the striving, the moving forward that has the most potential to bring us joy. And if you follow my logic, that is why life ought to be one big celebration. My daughter actually embodies this sentiment pretty well finding about the same level of joy in helping with a chore as she does in, say, visiting the zoo. For a toddler, all of life really is an adventure, and they haven't yet figured out when they're supposed to be joyful, when they're supposed to celebrate. So we sing songs to clean up to and songs to brush teeth to, and she doesn't have any reason to think that those things aren't entirely song-worthy. <laughs> and when you think about it, they are because isn't everything? All the ways that we move and talk and interact, they are all pretty amazing. This is where a religious community, and perhaps especially a humanistic religious community, like Wes, like ethical culture, can help us find the joy in life. Our religion asks us to celebrate what I sometimes call the natural miracles the birth of children, the warmth of community, the slow but steady arc of justice. We celebrate at certain times in the year and over the course of a lifetime, but there's nothing to keep us from celebrating the miracles we see all the rest of the time, too. Indeed, our religious humanism teaches us that we are connected to each other, that each human life is precious 
in a way that acknowledges and honors the individual, but that goes beyond it, binding us together as one human family. We already know, deep in our religious beings, what all those ecstatic experiences end up showing, that there exists a oneness in human reality, which is indeed a joy. So what would it look like if we really lived as though we knew that? If we celebrated not just the beginnings of things, but the murky middle as well, acknowledging the joy possible in all of it? I think there would be more dancing, metaphorically in a spirit of lightheartedness, but literally too. I love those wedding receptions where everyone is up. The grandmas and the preschoolers, the bride surrounded by her college friends, the teenagers dancing with their usually completely uncool parents. People are dancing not just because the DJ has made a good musical choice, but because they know that something wonderful has happened. Something amazing was created in the wedding ceremony that they just witnessed. Well, life is often wonderful and amazing and sometimes just sort of silly, and I try to remember in those moments to dance. Laughter, that would be good, too. Laughter at the ridiculous, the enchanting laughter at ourselves and with each other. I wonder if you have ever experienced a committee meeting where everything gets done quickly, and somehow it seems to be because you brought a sense of humor, a sense of joy to your efficiency. I have had those, the meetings where we get through the agenda and tell hysterical stories, and they are the meetings that transcend business and truly become religious. I think in an embodied, joyful life, we'd cry as well, both because life is painful sometimes and because tears are a way of sharing deep emotion of any kind, a connector of human experience that few other things can match. It's hard to keep from crying when you see another's pained tears just as it's hard to keep from laughing when another person is overcome by giggles. True and honest emotional experience and our sharing of it may be a way for us to approach that ecstatic feeling, that losing of ourselves in the connection to each other. So that is what I wish for us this year, this year when we have begun to settle into all the newness we've experienced recently. I wish for shared laughter and shared tears, for dancing and singing and celebration. I wish that we find a way to embody joy, to really know that a life of striving toward an ethical ideal of human fellowship is a joyful life. When we show up at rallies and marches this year, and I hope we will, I want people to point to us and say, hey, those people not only care about the world, they're having a heck of a good time doing it. I want us to remember that even when it seems as though we are surrounded by beginnings and endings, we are always in the middle of something. And that something, that life, is worth celebrating. My title today came from a journey song, 
which doesn't actually have anything to do with religion or ecstatic experience. But it is about life. As Journey sang, it goes on and on and on. You know the secret, though, that joy can be found through it all, that you can live the joy in your dancing, your laughter, and your tears, that great joy of human connection. So don't stop believing.